This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. You might think of dementia simply as memory loss. In its early stages, it could be getting lost on the way to a familiar place or forgetting something that happened just a few days ago. In its later stages, there's the inability to recognize friends and relatives. In fact, dementia can impact all of the senses, putting people who have it in a brutal alternate reality. Now technology is enabling caregivers to go into that world. I'm joined by Hope Carwile of Vivage Senior Living in Lakewood and Kathy Risden of Highlands Ranch. She travels frequently to Illinois to care for her sister who has Alzheimer's disease. Kathy Risden recently went through a virtual reality experience to learn more about what her sister faces. Hope, Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Kathy, your sister was diagnosed seven years ago. She was only 52 years old. Tell me how that changed things for you. Oh, it changed our world dramatically. We had no family history, so it completely caught us off guard, and we all wanted to help. So we really just shifted our priorities and pulled together to really learn and educate ourselves on what this disease is and what we can try to do to help. And you live in different states, but you've been a big part of her caregiving. Yes. um, In the beginning, I actually traveled back to Illinois three weeks a month. So I left my corporate job to help take care of her, and then my parents would do the other week. And and we did that for a long time until her disease progressed to a point where it was beyond our capabilities. So we, over time, started to get live-in care. And then eventually, just last June, she was placed in a memory care community. And the virtual reality experience that you went through is designed to really demonstrate how different senses, vision, hearing, touch in particular, are affected by Alzheimer's disease. Set the scene for us. You actually put on some accessories, right? I did. Um, So there's some glasses and gloves and other things that they do, adaptive things to kind of simulate what it might be like for a person with Alzheimer's. And it really was an eye-opening experience to feel it firsthand. And after you put on those gloves and goggles, what happened? Well, you kind of go into a room that simulates what that environment would be and there's sounds that are created and there's things you're not able to do as well because the gloves are tailored in a way to kind of simulate what it might be like for somebody that loses some dexterity. And of course, the glasses, you know, can affect your vision. You really just go into this room and it's not your normal room. And then you're given a series of tasks, right? You are. So there's things that impair your ability to understand those tasks. So it's kind of trying to figure it out without really knowing or hearing clearly what those tasks were. And um, I found myself just kind of wandering around and just looking for stuff to do. And without giving too much away, were you able to complete your tasks? Uh, one of them, one of the four. <laughs> so, um, And it was just by happenstance, I saw some things there. I'm like, well, I could do that. And I didn't know if that was one of my tasks at the time, but found out later that it was. Was there anything about it that surprised you? My sister has young onset Alzheimer's, so her experience is a little bit different, where she doesn't have some of the vision issues that typically a senior may have. So some of that didn't translate in our world because of her age. So young onset is a completely different set of Alzheimer's symptoms. Um, So that was kind of different for me to understand it from a different perspective. And even with those ways that maybe this virtual reality doesn't exactly parallel your sister's experience, did it give you any new insight about what she might be going through? It, It did from the standpoint of the consistency of it to understand that some of the sounds and some of the vision issues aren't just at certain times of the day. It's all day, every day. And that's got to be an incredible burden for that person to carry. Hmm. And Hope, in moving to the physical aspects of this experience, how do you know that what you're simulating, 
are what people with Alzheimer's are actually experiencing. Well, the organization that actually developed it did extensive research. So working with neurologists, working with individuals living with dementia, working with family members, working with care partners. You follow along with people going through the exercise and give them instructions, evaluating how they respond to the experience. What are you looking to learn? The learning, I think, is some of what I call the aha moments. You have a lot of employees that are doing this great work day in and day out. And then they go through this experience and sometimes they feel a lot of guilt because they now identify, oh my gosh, this might be what that individual is living with and this is only an eight-minute experience and they're living it for their waking hours and sometimes sleeping hours um, because sleep can be pretty tough as well. So I continuously learn the compassion of others and just that empathy that many people have going into this journey with people living with dementias. Um, We have a debriefing session at the end. And sometimes the debrief is 10 minutes. And then sometimes the debriefing can be a half hour to 45 minutes. Because there is that guilt piece, there is that piece of unknowing. And then they take it back in and they say, okay, we need to slow down. We're all moving really fast in this world, and maybe what people living with dementia are trying to teach us is that we need to slow down and we need to be present, because that's really, I think, the best interventions for individuals living with progressive dementias. And when people are exiting this virtual reality Mm -hmm. experience with guilt, is it largely because they didn't understand as well before they went in what it was like? Absolutely. Can you give me some examples of things that people have said to you during a debrief that are things that they've taken away? Oftentimes, the takeaway is I need to sit with a person, build a relationship before I ask so many questions. And when I do ask questions, ask one simple question. Give time for response. Also, look at the environment. How is that environment playing into our interactions? Is there too much noise? Is there too much light? How do we create a space where that person feels safe? And then there's tears. There's, there's lots of tears of, okay, this is what we've done. This is how we've done it. We're now going to do it differently. I'm charged. I'm ready to go. Thank you for the tools. And the beauty about the experience is you can walk away with like 10 bullets of these easy reset things to do. And you can use these same practices in your own life. The slowing down, the being present, listening, active listening. And not just to the words that somebody is saying, but to their whole body, to their body language. And Kathy, you've been working as a caregiver for a long time. Are these things that Hope is saying, do they resonate with you and your experience? Absolutely, especially about the slowing down, asking one task at a time, getting at eye level, you know, approaching from the front and not from behind, you know, because they have all these other ancillary noises going on inside of them. It's really entering their reality. I mean, there's people at communities and other support groups I've attended where people will start to argue with their person that's diagnosed, and they just don't understand that they're in a different world right now, and you have to enter that world both physically and emotionally, slowing it down, you know, and just appreciating the time. Hmm. And hope. Now, I'm going to give away a bit of a secret here. Our producer went through this experience and actually didn't hear the instructions you gave for the task. Now, that doesn't usually happen, but in a way, it's tied to how you deliver those instructions, right? So it's kind of like when you're at home. 
You know, you're you're talking and you're not looking at someone. You know, you might be yelling from the kitchen these directions to your loved ones. You're talking really fast or you're going out the door. That's what we we did in this environment because that's oftentimes what we do uh, with individuals that are living with Alzheimer's because we put them in the same place that we're in. And we do need to be in their world and navigate that with them. Do you have a sense for how the losses that they're experiencing, not just the memory, but these other capabilities, even the ability to do small chores impacts them emotionally? As individuals, we need a sense of purpose and a sense of connectivity. And we already know that loneliness is an epidemic in our culture. It is compounded when you are living with dementia. They don't feel connected. A sense of purpose isn't there. You have to really modify daily activities for what their interests are. And it's pretty magical because it changes. (laughs) It changes a lot. So you have to be quick. (laughs) So from one second to the next, you know, you're you're exploring and um, figuring out what somebody is authentically interested in. And Kathy, does that jibe with anything that you felt while you were going through the experience? Oh, absolutely. Especially, you know, with the instructions. I couldn't hear them either (laughs) with some of the things they do to kind of simulate the environment. And actually, I kept trying to take the directions from Hope, not (laughs) knowing if I was supposed to or not. But you want to do something. You want to have value, even though you may not be able to articulate it. When we give instructions, we actually shadow it. Like, we'll do it with my sister and others will do that with their loved one so they can visualize it as well as hearing it. So you're trying to use all the sensories, you know, vision, hearing, touch, you know, so Mm -hmm. if they can mirror what you're doing, it makes it a little bit easier. And you mentioned that you're a volunteer with the Alzheimer's Association. So you've seen this, obviously, not only with your sister, but in general. But I understand that 50% of people with dementia are never even formally diagnosed. Mm -hmm. Where should people go if they believe a family member or a friend is having a problem? You know, that's where we've turned to the Alzheimer's Association, and we actually learned about it through our physician. Um, Right now, in Colorado alone, there's 73,000 people diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so we're not alone, and you don't have to go through this alone. So there's an 800 number that's available 24-7, and they can get you in touch with the right resources to help through that, whether that's support groups, education. We have all kinds of documents to prepare for a doctor's visit or, you know, long-term planning and financial planning. And all of these services are free of charge. You know, this disease is growing exponentially. Every 65 seconds, somebody is diagnosed with Alzheimer's. So yes, we have 73,000 now, and that can fill up Mile High Stadium. That's going to grow to over 90,000 in just five, six years. So definitely place that call. They can get you in touch with the right resources to help your family. Hmm. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Kathy Risden lives in Highlands Ranch. She's a caregiver for her sister who has Alzheimer's disease and lives in Illinois. Hope Carwile is an innovation specialist with Vivage Senior Living in Lakewood. We've been talking about how virtual reality can help create a new understanding of Alzheimer's. Six out of 10 third graders are not reading at grade level in Colorado. State lawmakers advanced a bill Thursday that would better train teachers working with struggling readers. But advocates for children with dyslexia say the bill doesn't go far enough to address the real problem and will result in more wasted money. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine is tracking this for us. She's here now. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Avery. There's a lot at stake in this. How does it go beyond just grade-level reading concerns? 
Yeah, one reason this issue has captured the attention of the powerful Joint Budget Committee at the legislature is that if kids are not reading by third grade, there are widespread ramifications. They're more likely to drop out or even end up in prison. And there's also studies pointing out that if they don't master reading, that feeds into feelings of low self-worth and other mental health challenges. And a lot of testimony at this hearing and at others has been pretty emotional. Yes, parent Karen Johnson is with the group CoKids, and she says thousands of children in Colorado are suffering. These children testified in the dyslexia bill that they have hurt themselves, that they have thought of suicide. There was a parent who discussed her child's bald spot where she pulled her hair out because she couldn't read. She still has it. She's now at a private school thriving. These children are what I hope you keep in the forefront of your mind as you consider this bill moving forward. Not the establishment education community, and I'm a bit of a bull in a china shop here, but that establishment has gotten us to where we are today. We'll return to what these parents want to see in the bill in a moment. But first, didn't Colorado try to tackle this issue several years ago with a new law aimed at helping struggling readers? Yes, indeed. In 20, uh, 2012, lawmakers passed the READ Act, and it called for more screenings and interventions for students in the early grades, those who have significant reading deficiencies. But it turns out that the number of kids who are well below where they should be in reading has actually gone up slightly. And I'm imagining that some of that could be due to more better screenings and identification. Yeah, that's true. But after more than five years, I think lawmakers and educators hope to make a much bigger dent in this problem. So budget analysts said, whoa, it might be time for a new approach since the state has already put about $231 million into the READ Act. $231 million. And there haven't been a lot of results? Yeah, I'll let uh, Senator Nancy Todd, who's also a bill sponsor, answer that. I would not say that all the money that has been spent from the READ Act has gone down the drain. I I think there are some very strong success stories. The problem is we don't know what those success stories are. The state doesn't collect detailed information on who's doing what and whether it's working. What does the new READ Act bill do? So the bill asks for just that. So it really calls for an independent evaluator to report on what districts are doing and the success they're having. Secondly, the bill shifts some READ Act money to train teachers in better reading methods. That's a big part of the bill. Districts that take that money, they have to prove that they've actually trained their teachers. The bill also targets more money for reading interventionists. Uh, Bill sponsor Senator Bob Rankin, he wants accountability. There are many districts who are not doing the right thing with reading. There are many districts who've been using this money for various other aspects. We know that. I just want to make sure that we are clearly sending a message that we will hold everyone accountable for being able to teach reading and teaching reading. Now, Jenny, I understand that parents of children with dyslexia are not pleased with all aspects of this bill, and they say it doesn't go far enough. Yes, they've been in the system for a long time, and this is a system that largely doesn't know how to teach their children how to read. Many of the screening programs to identify struggling readers when they start in kindergarten don't capture kids with dyslexia, so they just flounder. These are kids who may be gifted, but their brains aren't able to decode words. That is, connect sounds to the letters in the words. Many teachers in Colorado say they're frustrated that they haven't been trained in the method that works. But what's important is these children can be taught to read with a curriculum that works for all children? 
Mm-hmm. And we've talked about this on on the show before. There are evidence-based practices that show, and this is important, an explicit, systematic, sequential, phonics-based approach works for all children. But that language is not in the bill. No, the bill's sponsors say that their bill does spell out the five foundational skills needed to learn to read. Uh, advocates argue most districts say they're already practicing those skills now. But despite decades of science on the best way to teach reading, there was still pushback behind the scenes from educators. Education forces. Here's Kevin Vick. He's vice president of the Colorado Education Association. That's the largest teachers union in the state. I think that reading is it's somewhat organic in nature. And just like you can't dictate or tell how a plant is going to grow, it's very difficult to force or dictate any sort of of uh, reading on a child. And so I would hesitate to be that forceful in terms of being very prescriptive on on it. So advocates would say this isn't a matter of forcing kids to read. It's a matter of using the latest science-based method to teach reading. And another part of the original bill that was stripped after lobbying pressure, one that would have required teachers and classroom aides to get a certification in reading instruction. Yeah, advocates didn't like that, that it was taken out of the bill. Here's Callie Nichols, who has a son in college, but he's still reading at the fifth grade level. The science of reading is very clear, and it's not whole language. It's not balanced literacy. It is structured literacy. It is explicit, it's systematic, and it is direct instruction. And our teachers, for the most part, do not have that expertise. So when I saw in the previous version of the bill that you had a certification requirement, oh, I was so happy. Like, this is awesome. Because that is what we're missing. That is the gap. We, we know by science what we need to do. But our teachers are not being taught. So therefore, there's a huge gap about the science and what is happening in the classroom. And until we bridge that gap, nothing is going to change. Now, I do want to talk about other advocacy groups, because there are some that have more faith that what's in the proposed bill will result in positive change for students. Yes, there's a group, Stand for Children, and it's done two reports analyzing the inadequacies of the READ Act. Well, Stan believes if the READ Act and this new READ Act is properly implemented and teachers receive adequate training, it does have the potential to help all children, including those with dyslexia. Amy Pitlick says the bill's emphasis on literacy coaches is important. And she says in Mississippi, they poured $80 million, and that's wildly more than Colorado is proposing, into literacy coaches, and the state has seen significant results. And I think that increasing that focus in this state will help teachers feel more expert in the science of reading and help readers, uh, especially the most struggling. Jenny, where does the bill stand now? So it's cleared its first hurdle. That's the Senate Education Committee. It now goes to Senate Appropriations. The main Joint Budget Committee has already set aside money for it, but definitely expect more changes, more lobbying. A lot of people feel strongly about this bill. Thanks, Jenny. You're welcome. That's CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine talking about a new bill designed to improve how well Colorado third graders read. The chances people could one day visit Mars just improved. This week, NASA released a study that involved researchers at Colorado State University. It shows that living in space in a, for a year 
has very little impact on the human body. That finding has direct implications about long-term space missions. The study focused on identical twin astronauts Scott and Mark Kelly. Scott spent 340 days in space while Mark stayed on Earth. On a teleconference, Mark said what his brother did was a great act of public service. To be willing to put yourself through this for a year without really knowing, you know, what the impact on his own body was going to be. And I know he would play this down, but... Hey, Mark, just real quick to interrupt you, though, but I got all the glory, and you got a lot of work. <laughs> right. So, and I got, I I got people coming to my house, <laughs> right, for, uh, for tooth the blood. So... Right. Researchers found that any effects of space on Scott's body virtually went away after a few months. Scott said he felt significantly different after returning to Earth. But I think most of the effects I had was gravity, gravity-related. You know, joint pain, muscle pain, swelling in my legs. My, my lower legs were swelling up like water balloons when I would stand up. I had hives and rashes anywhere my skin had touched anything. My, my arms, my, my butt, back of my legs... I felt like I had the flu. But after about six months, he says, he felt normal again. Scientists and the Kellys hope this research means a manned trip to Mars is closer than before. Here's Mark Kelly again. It's great we saw and we learned that the human body is pretty resilient and we can survive and to some extent maybe even thrive on these long-duration flights. If we decide to go to Mars someday with people, that's going to be a two-and-a-half-year trip. And I hope we do that and I hope we do it soon. I'd even volunteer to be the person to go now that we know this about my brother, Scott. It's Colorado Matters. From CPR News, I'm Avery Lill. Your next theater performance in Denver could look like this. You show up to a public place, alone, and meet a stranger for a blind date. She says to you, Yeah, I love this place. I haven't been in a really long time, but I used to come a lot. Before we go on, I should say I am... I've taken kind of a break from dating for a couple reasons. So I'd love if we could make this a real zero-pressure situation, not worry about where this is going or anything. Does that sound okay? How you answer is up to you. This is what the Denver Center for Performing Arts is doing right now. Personalized, one-on-one, immersive experiences, simply called Between Us. Audiences can choose from three different adventures, one of them being a blind date where you'll meet up with a stranger at Denver's Museum of Contemporary Art. Actor Mayor Trevathan says the shows are different every time because they're largely dependent on what the audience member contributes. I would say that it's about a third scripted, third is the influence of the audience member, and a third is the influence of the space itself, the other humans around us, and the art on the walls, and what that provokes in people. And performing in a public space like a museum comes with its own curveballs. One of the hazards of immersive theater is that when you're doing it in your own town, you will likely run into people you know who do not know that you are acting. So yes, uh, several of us have had those moments, and we're learning how to better incorporate that without alienating our friends and family (laughs) in the process. Between Us is all about connecting with another person as authentically as possible in a pretend situation. But Trevathan discovered that those connections can manifest very differently. 
One of our test audience members was visibly emotional throughout our time together, and I left that experience just feeling like, oh my gosh, this show was built for her. What a joy it was to get to do this with her. And then two days ago, I had an audience member who was quite reserved and shy, and he had so much enjoyment from the experience, and I left that one going, oh my gosh, this show was built for him. So it's a container that's very malleable. She also suspects that not all audience members come to the show ready to be themselves. My sense of it is, is that we're receiving a mix of truth and lies, and that I think people are experimenting a little bit with showing us a different personality, and frequently they want to tell us the truth if it feels as if it would be guilt-inducing to lie. So if it feels like they don't have clearance with their partner to, to go on this date, and you know, if there's, if there's something like that where they feel some sort of stress around it, I think people are telling us the truth. Yes, I'm married. <laughs> and you know, we can absorb that. Now, to hear where this idea came from, let's meet Charlie Miller. He's the curator for Off Center, DCPA's unconventional theater program that's behind Between Us. Hi, Charlie. Hi, thank you for having me. We've been talking about one of the pieces that makes up Between Us, The Blind Date, but there are two others. Briefly tell us about those. So we also have the deck of cards, which the Denver Post just described as a poetic tarot reading, and the whiskey tasting, which is actually for two audience members. So you and a friend, you and a partner, you and a stranger meet a bartender, you taste four whiskeys uh, and have an experience around that. And how do you possibly write a script for something like this when the dialogue is so reliant on the audience? That's a great question. We commissioned three different creative teams to create three each of these pieces, and each approached it differently. These are top theater makers from across the country, one based in L.A., one based in New York, and one based here in Denver and Boulder. And um, the pieces are scripted, and they are have a lot of room for improvisation and questions that the ad- audience has asked. And so there's a lot of room to see where it goes based on what the audience brings. The director, writer of The Blind Date likes to describe the script as a highway with a lot of Mm off-ramps. And it's the actor's job to stay on the highway, to take the off-ramp, figure out how long you need to be off the highway with the audience, follow their ideas and thoughts, and then how to get back on the highway at the end. And I'm just imagining there are so many different kinds of people coming into these performances. Do the actors find that they're able to keep their performances on that highway? Um, You know, the big experiment with this production is to see how much agency we can give the audience in the experience while still delivering a cohesive narrative so that there is a satisfying ending. But there's a lot of room inside of that for whatever the audience wants to bring and really honoring the what the audience brings to the table. That's so interesting. This production, it involves a lot of mystery. Audience members, they don't know where their performance is until the day before, and they won't know anything about the person they're meeting. Tell me about that choice. 
Well, we've learned that with these type of uh, immersive experiences and non-traditional theater, the element of surprise is part of what makes it so exciting for people. And with the one-on-ones in between us, it's really about having a completely unique experience. And we don't want you to have a lot of expectations for what that will be going in. And so one of the ways we can do that is by not giving you an image of where you're going to be or how it's going to go. We take very good care of the audience and we're really cautious and thoughtful about that. But we want you to not have any expectations going in and, and not giving away the location is part of that. And there have been variations on this type of theater in the past. New York has theater for one, and Off Center has even experimented with Shakespeare in a parking lot where audiences were brought into a van to watch snippets of plays. But what sets between us apart from those other one-on-one experiences? You know, a a lot of theater makers across the country are interested in new ways of putting audiences at the center of the theater experience. And that's really what Off Center is dedicated to and passionate about as well. Um, We are doing these as unique new experiences for Denver. And what's so incredible about this, as Mayor said earlier, is that each show is totally different based on the audience member. And it really is tailored to you. And it really is responsive to what the audience brings. So uh, there's really nothing like it. And every single show is completely different. So it's not just theater being performed in front of one person. It's theater essentially being created with another person. Absolutely. It's a very cool idea. But having a limited number of performances in a day with only one paying audience member per show, I've got to wonder, how is this financially sustainable? Well, the Denver Center for the Performing Arts is a nonprofit theater. And believe it or not, even our larger productions, ticket sales don't cover all of the costs of making the show. And so we're, we're able to cover that gap through a series of um, individual donations and grants. Off Center is lucky to be supported by the Wallace Foundation, which is a national uh, a national foundation supporting performing arts organizations. And so that helps offset the costs. And the DCPA has decided that it is really important to invest in this work. And even though we're not going to reach a huge number of people, it's important to us artistically to be able to create really deep and meaningful experiences for audience members and giving Denver something totally unique and different. Hmm. And you said that there are lots of different kinds of audience members, and that makes sense. But what about people who are shy or maybe more introverted? Will this kind of theater work for them? It does, actually. I'm I'm an introvert, and there's something very intimate and special about this work. Uh, sometimes when people think about it, they imagine they're going to be put on the spot. But we're not asking you to play a role. We're not asking you to be someone else. We're asking you to show up as yourself and to engage honestly and get to know this stranger and have a conversation with them. And with each of the shows, there is a situation that can be familiar, a date, a whiskey tasting, where you have a reason to engage and really get to know and talk to this character. And performances have been going on for a couple of weeks. What's the feedback been like? The feedback has been very positive. We've heard a lot in the deck of cards. People have described it as theater meets therapy in the best way. Um, In the blind date, we've heard about how unexpected it was and how people didn't uh, 
but didn't think it would be as deep as it was. And with the whiskey tasting, people are learning a lot about whiskey, which is part of the goal, and also getting to know the person that they came with in a totally different way. So we're getting really positive feedback. And again, it just reinforces how every single one of these experiences is different because of what the audience brings to the table. Have you run into audience members who don't want to participate? You know, I think... We're clear enough in the way we describe these experiences that if you're going to buy a ticket, you know that you're ready for it and and you're down for whatever is going to happen. So uh, we haven't heard a lot of people who uh, don't didn't want to get into what they what they where they went. And and like I said, we're very thoughtful about consent and letting the audience go as far or as uh, you know as far as they want to go. So. Um, it is a safe and, and a comfortable interaction for people, and we're finding that people are really getting a lot out of it. Charlie Miller is the curator for DCPA's Off Center. Their current production is an immersive one-on-one experience called Between Us that runs through May 26th. When we come back, celebrating 35 years of making music with Chris Daniels. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Hey, I'm Sam Brash, host of CPR's politics podcast, Purplish. This year, Democrats are giving local communities more power over the oil and gas industry. So for our latest episode, we look back at the long fight leading up to this. I had no idea of the size or the power of the oil and gas lobbies. I really didn't care. Colorado's first drilling ban and how it ended up limiting the power of other communities. Again, that's Purplish. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Few Colorado musicians have more of an impressive and varied career than Chris Daniels. The singer-songwriter has led Chris Daniels and the Kings for 35 years. The funk, rock, and swing band tours relentlessly, averaging 100 shows a year in the United States and Europe. When my baby called me up, say she's good to go. Fellas, I'm whipped, I don't mind saying so. Help them for help. Daniels was inducted into the Colorado Music Hall of Fame in 2013, and last year, he became the hall's executive director. It all started in 1984 when the Kings first got together for a rehearsal at the Boulder Theater, then empty and closed. It was supposed to be a one-night gig. Chris Daniels and the Kings returned to the iconic venue tomorrow night for an anniversary show that will feature some longtime friends and collaborators, including Freddie Gowdy, Hazel Miller, and Kenny Passarelli. Daniels spoke with my colleague Ryan Warner in 2014. Chris, thank you for being with us. It's just a pleasure. I love the show. You've remarked, even boasted, I think, that you've averaged about 100 shows a year since forming Chris Daniels and the Kings in 1984. A lot of musicians despise touring and living out of a suitcase, and you don't tour quite like the Rolling Stones or you too, you know? <laughs> no, uh, we don't quite have their accommodations, but uh, I think it's because we love being on stage. I mean, I, I talked to my students at CU Denver about this, and the idea is that if you love performing, this is a great world to be in. Let, let me um, say that you teach the business of music at CU Denver. I do. I yeah. teach in what we call the Music and Entertainment Industry Studies Program. But how, how have you not gotten burnt out on touring? Well, I think mostly it's, um, I approach every time, every night I get on stage with one thought, which is if I can do one thing better than I did 
the night before, or if there's one moment that all of a sudden goes, ah, I haven't played that lick, or boy, I sang that passage well, or I did that transition between songs. I'm looking for that every night, every single night that I play. And that way, every night is a new experience yeah. and an opportunity to grow, I suppose. Well, and that, and we don't use set lists. <laughs> I see. So it's it's what you feel like playing. Yeah. It's Well, it's what, what the audience is telling us, the feedback we're getting. If they yell, you know, play yeah. this one, yeah. that doesn't offend you? Because I know no, some artists are like, don't tell me what to do. Oh, not in the least. Artie Shaw talked about doing the Begin the Begin and how it became an albatross around his neck. This is, this is the band leader, Artie Yeah, Shaw. the great band leader from the 30s. And uh, he talked about, you know, that was a snapshot of where I was. And the audience kept wanting me to go back to that snapshot. And they wanted it, him to play that tune. Over begin and the over and over again. Carol King said, if you write a hit song, you better like it because you can play it forever. So what I have to do is realize that these songs are developing. What's an example, perhaps, of a, of a song you've been playing for years that you haven't gotten sick of, but yeah. on, the other, on the other on the other hand, have actually grown with? Oh boy, like, um, maybe a song that's <clears throat> revealed itself even more over the years. Yeah, there, there's a there's a number of them. Um, probably the first hit we had, which was called "When You're Cool, The Sun Shines All the Time." I go back and listen to the original recording of that. And it's it's a good recording, but it doesn't nearly get to what we do with it live, where we extend the solos. I've got a story now about my origins in Minnesota and coming out here for the first time. And so now it's become more of an epic, whereas then it was just a song that turned out to be popular. But um, Well, let's hear the original recorded yeah, version. Should we do that? That sounds great. But the cat wasn't blind. He was giving the eye to every little sweet young thing. I stepped over and asked him why He wore sunglasses late at night He said when you're cool The sun shines all the time When you're cool The sun shines all the time Okay, that's the original version. When was that recorded, Chris? That was recorded in 1986. Why don't we hear the newer version? You have a recording of right. the live version. Yeah. This is from how many years later? Let's do the one from the uh, live Wired album. So this was recorded in about 1995. Okay. More than a decade later. More than later. a decade later. What do you like about this version we should be listening for? Well, what's really developed is my vocal. When I first started singing... I was afraid of my voice. But you grow into it. And eventually, um, I sang a lot of commercials. And so I learned about how my voice worked. And I got better and better. And I started to get really comfortable and then to exploit it. But the cat wasn't blind. He kept giving me eye to every little sweet young thing. I stepped over and asked him why. He wore sunglasses in the middle of the night. Man, when you're cool, the sun shines all the time. When you're cool, the sun shines all the time. You got your start in smaller, intimate venues like Herman's Hideaway and Little Bear. What was that like? Yeah, you know, there are three, four hundred people and uh, very wild clubs. I remember when we first played Herman's Hideaway. Um, they didn't actually have an official stage. Okay. They had a bunch of these giant 
boxes that were covered with red shag carpet that you sort of pushed together to make a stage. Um, you know, announce the club where, oh God, the Subdudes and Big Head Todd and the Monsters and Chris Daniels and the Kings all sort of originated from. And then now there's a whole new generation. You know, I look at my classes and look at some of the new music that's coming out of, you know, the people in my classes. And I'm going, wow, there's a whole new generation playing Hermans. And Little Bear is just the wildest mountain bar that's ever been. It should be in a movie, you know. <laughs> People carve their names in the walls, and there's bras hanging from over the stage. What do you remember about those first audiences? So the stage wasn't much. How was the crowd? The crowd really loved what we did. There weren't horn bands. When we came along in 1984, I have to realize it's kind of new wave. Right. And then you've got also the big hair metal sort of sound. And the one alternative to that um, was Huey Lewis and the News. And that was sort of the sound of what was going on then. And we came along doing a full tilt, blood, sweat, and tears, Chicago kind of sound. And people found it incredibly refreshing. The thing that people said to us constantly was, wow, a band with horns, real horns, not just synthesizers. What was it about those venues that helped you find a following? You, you could have stayed at that level your whole life. You know, there are people who, who just, yeah. that's, that's their bread and butter. I think what we constantly looked to do was to go beyond that. The formula for breaking out of Colorado was a pretty hard formula because we live on that sort of island. And so we made the most out of living on the island. Do you mean to say the geographic, geographic island here? Geographic island, yeah. It's, you yeah. Know, there's no water, of... you know, but it's, you know, you're surrounded by, you know, roughly six to eight hours of driving before you have the next major market. It's completely different than New York or Philly. Right. Hard to tour a lot of towns yeah. and not drive really long stretches. Right. Yeah. You have, so you have this incredible, I mean, this, again, I talk with my students about this. This is such a great island. And, and you look at the music that comes out of here, um, you know, the Frey and Davachka and young new bands that are coming up. And... They all deal with the same thing. Is once you've made a, a really good use of this island, you've got to get off of it. And so that was always our focus. How did you get off it? Well, we first place we went to was Minneapolis. And we would go to Minneapolis and uh, Chicago and uh, Madison, and that was our second island. So we'd do what I call island hopping. <laughs> you know? And then we, then we did New York and Boston and, and New Jersey, and that was our third island. So we started to build up regional followings in each one of those areas. And then in 1987, when Your Cool hit, at the same time, that a new radio format at the time called AAA came on and they were looking for new product. And the third thing that happened is we were the first Colorado band to do a CD and radio was looking for uh, content with CDs. And so we were the As first opposed Colorado. to tape cassettes. Yeah. 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 C cassette tapes. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. been so long since I've used one. I don't right. even know the proper term anymore. Uh, why don't we hear something from that CD? Sure. What would you point to? Well, actually, I would point to the next one because that was our breakout CD. And it's ah. called That's What I Like About the South. It was produced by Al Cooper 
And it was such a wonderful thing to run into him and, and work with him because he'd started Blood, Sweat, and Tears. He knew horn bands, and he knew how to arrange for them. And he and our baritone sax player at the time, Fly McClard, got together and did these incredible horn arrangements. And that's what I like about the South, had a song called I Like Your Shoes on it. It's become a standard for us. It was an old Freddie Henchy tune from the Freddie Henchy band. And um, that really blew up in Europe. That got us a record deal in Europe. Excuse me. I like the way you move me, baby. When you dance across the floor. If I could get you over to my place, girl. I could give you just a little bit more. I like your shoes. Do you like more? I want to talk about your um, your personal life, your sure. health. Yeah. <laughs> so you're a survivor of leukemia. Yeah. You underwent a bone marrow transplant and chemotherapy a few years ago. Yeah. This experience led you to write and record a solo album called Better Days. Right. In the liner notes, you say, this music is dedicated to my sister Jane, who gave me a bone marrow transplant via stem cells that bought me the time to get this done. Right, exactly. Um, I have, or had, I'm not sure even how you say it, acute myeloid leukemia, which you'd never want to hear your doctor say. Um, the survival rates are not great. Because of a bone marrow transplant, I'm literally here. The survival rates are about 10%, but with that, they in- increased dramatically. And your sister donated the bone marrow. Yeah, so it's a really easy thing to do, actually. Anybody can do this. It's one of the ways you can save a life. And so now my bone marrow is all girl. I like to go shoe shopping. (laughs) It's great. (laughs) Well, you you were very public about this, about this illness and about the recovery. And it obviously infused a lot of the songs on Better Days, including the title track. Right. And I've been edgy. Anger easily Some friends been worrying about me But there's better days Coming my way I can hear them as clear As this guitar that I play Are you getting tired of talking about the illness? I, I, it's a wonderful question. Oddly enough, I, I get I'm, people ask me, how are you doing? Yep. And it's such a beautiful question because they really want to know. And the problem is with this kind of disease, you, there's no way of telling how long you get. So your frame of reference changes from, well, in three years I'd like to and in five years I'd like to to today is sunny and beautiful and I'm going to go take a four-mile walk today. And you really change your focus. That is to say there's no such thing as pure remission with this? I think there is, um, but my doctors never say cured. They say, they say, I said, well, God, what if I reach five years? Do you ever say cured? And they said, not with leukemia. It can come back. So you develop a very clear sense of today is really important. It's, it's a, I suppose it's a form of post-traumatic stress. You kind of know your own mortality in a way that I think others don't understand. What's interesting is that I think when a lot of people go through illness, right. they make a dramatic change in their life. You know, they say things like, I, I was tired of my job and I got rid of it and I you know, moved to <laughs> Tuscany or something. 
you've continued down the same path. That's because I'm really lucky. I don't work in a coal mine, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but so. was this was this confirmation that you were on the right path? I suppose. What a good question. What I knew was that when I was sick, two things kept me going. And one was working on the stuff that I was doing with CU Denver. And I was grading papers. I was rewriting content for the courses. And eventually I was teaching via Skype which was pretty hilarious because my kids, when I came back, I always joke about this. They'd say, well, dude, you're much smaller in person um, <laughs> <laughs> because they'd have me big bald head up on the TV. But you'd like do this from a bed or yeah, something? Yeah, I did it from a hospital bed. But it kept me going. It energized me. Um, and then writing songs. And I wrote a lot of songs when I was there. That's Chris Daniels speaking with Ryan Warner in 2014. Chris Daniels and the Kings will mark their 35 years as a band tomorrow night with a show at Boulder Theater. I'm Avery Lill. Thanks for joining us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.